Our text for this morning is Psalm 8. This, this psalm, people of God, is entirely a prayer. It's a prayer written by David, but a prayer which he puts into the mouths of all of God's people. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. It's also a prayer in which we do not find any petitions at all. The whole is devoted to the praise of God. It's especially devoted to the praise of God as he has revealed himself in his creation. How excellent is your name in all the earth. In Article 2 of the Belgic Confession, which you can find in the Three Forms of Unity on page 53, we read this, that God has revealed himself in the universe, which is before our eyes as a most elegant book, wherein all creatures, great and small, are as so many characters leading us to see clearly his invisible attributes, even his eternal power and Godhead. This psalm is an expression of that truth, that God reveals himself in his creation. But it's especially the revelation of God in the Son of Man, That is the emphasis of this psalm. And that comes out clearly in the structure of the psalm. The psalm begins and ends with the very same words. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That's the main idea of the psalm then. It is a psalm of praise to God for the excellence of his name in all the earth. But in the very center of the psalm stands The words of verse 5. For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. All the rest of verses 2 through 8 revolve around that central notion that God has made the Son of Man a little lower than the angels and has crowned him with glory and honor. So that's the secondary idea of the psalm. The first being the revelation of God's glory in all the earth. And the second being that that glory is especially revealed in the glory that he has given to the Son of Man. We consider the psalm then under the theme, Praise to our Lord for his glory revealed in the Son of Man. We consider, first of all, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. That's verses 1 and 2. Secondly, you have made him a little lower than the angels. That's verses 3 to 8. And finally, how excellent is your name. Verse 9. Now as we look then at verses 1 and 2, we see that there is in those verses a movement 
downward. They begin with God and with the glory of God and the excellence of his name, move down from that glory of God to the heavens, line two, who have set your glory above the heavens, then from the heavens to babes and nursing infants, and finally from babes and nursing infants to the enemy and the avenger. The glory of God is revealed, first of all then, in his names. Verse 1, O Lord, or Yahweh, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That name Yahweh is, of course, the name by which God revealed himself to his people in the Old Testament as their faithful covenant God. But that name also tells us certain things about God as he is in himself. Tells us certain things about his attributes. The name means I am. When God sent Moses to the Israelites in Egypt to announce that he was coming to redeem them from that bondage, he told Moses, tell them, Yahweh, I am, has sent you to them. That name designates first then the eternity of God. It tells us that he is the God who was before the worlds began, who is now, and who ever shall be. It tells us in the second place that he is the self-sufficient one. He has all things necessary for his own well-being and his own happiness, and his own existence in himself. He has no dependence on his creatures at all. He has no need of us for anything. And though he has created us for his glory, our praise of him does not enhance that glory at all. His glory is sufficient without us. And finally, that name tells us that he is the unchangeable one. He said to his people through the prophet Malachi, I am Yahweh, I change not. So those names speak to us already, that name speaks to us already of the glory of God. But he's also called our Lord here. And when we call him our Lord, we acknowledge, of course, that he rules up us, but even more than that, we acknowledge that he owns us. He is our master and we are his slaves. He has the absolute authority to do with us whatever he pleases. He is the potter, we are the clay. He is the shepherd, we are the sheep. He is the creator, we are the creatures. He does not have to consult us about what he wants to do with us. He is free to do with his creatures whatever he pleases. So again, there is an emphasis in that name, Lord, upon his exalted majesty. He is infinitely high above us. But his glory is also revealed in his name, not only in his names, but in his name. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name! in all the earth. And that refers to his revelation. 
His revelation of himself is a glorious revelation. His revelation of himself is inherent in the creatures he has made, in the earth that he has fashioned with his own hands. He has declared to us through that earth and through the creatures of that earth how great and glorious a God he is. There are many, many excellent things in his creation. Mountains and lions and insects and oceans and all kinds of creatures who are excellent, but who are excellent because of the name of God declared in them. Because they are as so many characters leading us to contemplate the invisible attributes of God. He is therefore an exalted God, a great God, and a glorious God. In line two, the psalmist moves down now to a consideration of the heavens. He calls our attention in line one to God himself, in line two to the heavens. In biblical teaching, there are three heavens. There is the heaven where the birds fly, There is the heaven where the stars and the planets move and have their places. And there is also the heaven where the angels and the souls who have gone to glory dwell. Remember what the Apostle Paul said of himself in 2 Corinthians 12, that he was caught up to the third heaven, to paradise, where he heard inexpressible things. Well, what the sound says about those heavens here is that God has set his glory above them, above all of those heavens. Heaven is his throne, and earth his footstool. And Solomon confessed concerning him in his prayer at the dedication of the temple, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. God's heavens are glorious, but his glory is above them. His glory is greater than the glory of the heavens. David then moves down to babes and nursing infants, which seems to us an enormous step. But we'll see why he moves that way when we come to the second part of the psalm. You have God in the heavens, now babes and nursing infants. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. What does that mean? What is it here that the psalmist is teaching us? That's a, a, to us, I think, a puzzling expression. And if you look up the commentaries on this subject, you'll find that the commentaries are all over the place on this, the interpretation of this as well. Let's call attention to a few things. First of all, Matthew 21, verse 16. When Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, the people of Israel who were there in the city of Jerusalem at that time shouted and sang to him their praises. When he returned to the city of Jerusalem on the next day, He went into the temple 
And there were little children there in the temple who saw him and who remembered what the people had said concerning him the day before and who began to repeat their words. Hosanna to the son of David. When the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews heard that praise of the little children, they came to Jesus objecting. They thought that that praise of the little children was inappropriate, and they thought that Jesus' acceptance of that praise was also inappropriate, and they wanted him to silence those children. And Jesus' answer to them was to quote from this psalm. Have you not read that he has ordained praise, that he has perfected praise from the mouths of babes and nursing infants? Jesus saw that praise of him in the temple, therefore, as a fulfillment of this verse. What those little children were saying, probably without much understanding of what they were saying, was a fulfillment of the words of David. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. I think there are a couple of comments we can read from commentators, too, that help us to understand this. John Calvin says, for example, the tongues of infants, even before they are able to pronounce a single word, speak loudly and distinctly in commendation of God's liberality towards the human race. Whence have they the skill to suck, but because the same God has by a mysterious instinct, fitted their tongues for doing this. Calvin sees this praise expressed in the very fact that the infants are able to nurse. God has formed their tongues for that. Matthew Henry speaks of the glory of God revealed first in the kingdom of nature, the care God takes of little children, the special providence or the special protection they are under, and the provision nature has made for them ought to be acknowledged by every one of us to the glory of God. Second, in the kingdom of providence, in the government of this lower world, he makes use of the children of men, some that know him and others that do not, and these such as have been babes and sucklings. Nay, sometimes he is pleased to serve his own purposes by the ministry of such as are still in wisdom and strength, little better than babes and sucklings. So there, Matthew Henry extends the interpretation of this expression from the literal little children to men who are like little children, who are little better than babes and sucklings in wisdom and strength. In the kingdom of grace, it is here foretold that by the apostles who were looked upon as babes, unlearned and ignorant men, mean and despicable, and by the foolishness of their preaching, the devil's kingdom should be thrown down. Also then, in his own people, who are the weak and despised things of this world, David talks in Psalm 119 in verses 98 to 100 about how 
God has made him, in many ways, inferior to his enemies, inferior to the, his teachers, inferior also to the ancients. But he says, nevertheless, I have more wisdom than they. God has given me more wisdom than they. I'm a child in relation to them. And yet, I have more wisdom than they. And in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about the foolish things of this world confounding the wise, and the weak things of this world confounding the things that are mighty. In other words, God uses very weak means to reveal his glory. Earthen vessels, to use the expression of the Apostle Paul. And he uses those very weak means, babes and little children, and we must remember, literally babes and in nursing infants, to silence the enemy and the avenger. He sets over against his enemies small children. This is the foolishness of God, according to 1 Corinthians 1. That he opposes to his enemies the strength of little children. Literally little children. Children who can't even speak yet. Are opposed to the strength of God's enemies. And by that strength, he silences them. He steals the enemy and the avenger. So these little children then in Psalm 8, verse 2, are above the enemies. They are the last in the hierarchy. And I think that's why they're called enemies and avengers. They see their place in that hierarchy. They hate God for it. And they hate those weak infants and nursing babes whom he has set over them. And they seek to take vengeance upon God for the place he has put them in. They exercise all their strength against him. And yet, yet people of God, they are not able even to resist the strength of babes and nursing infants. That then is what the psalm tells us about the glory of God in verses 1 and 2. Now in verses 3 to 8, or yes, 3 to 8, the psalmist repeats that hierarchy again. He begins again with God and the heavens and comes down to man and so on. So the hierarchy is repeated a second time but with a couple of differences. Because here, now, as he repeats this hierarchy, he does not speak of babes and nursing infants, but of man and the son of man. And also here, he does not speak anymore of the enemy and the avenger, but he speaks of the animals, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the seas. Now he doesn't say anything directly about God. All that he has to say about God is implicit 
in what he says about the heavens and about man. And so we'll consider that as we go through these verses. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. So David takes us out into the evening and has us look up at the evening sky. I think it's clear that he has in mind here the evening or night sky because he speaks only of the moon and the stars, not of the sun. And because it's especially, of course, at that time, at night, that we are especially impressed with the heavens and especially aware of them. When I consider your heavens, David looks up into the heavens then and he sees how vast, how immense those heavens are. Now David had no idea, of course, of light years and galaxies and supernovas and all those things about which science has taught us in the last few hundred years. But still, David, from his own place on the earth, saw that the heavens were very great. Great beyond the comprehension of man. Inconceivable in their vastness to man's mind. And what does he say about those heavens? He says, they are yours. When I consider your heavens, all those heavens, the vastness, the immensity of those heavens belongs to God. He owns it. He holds it in the hollow of his hand. It is as much his as we are. And as any other creature in the whole of earth. But he says also that the moon and the stars are the work of his fingers. That's a very striking expression. We have in many places in scriptures the expression, the work of his hands. But here, the work of his fingers. Why the work of his fingers? Because it suggests people of God the skill and artistry and attention to detail that God has exercised in the making of the stars. He didn't just slap them up there in the heavens as some modern painter slaps paint on a canvas. But he put them in their places. He fashioned them according to their size and brightness and place in their solar systems and galaxies and everything else. The same way that a skillful artist paints a landscape, making sure that every detail in that whole landscape contributes to the purpose he has in painting it. So God, with the vastness of the heavens, has paid attention to the details, to all the stars individually. He knows them by their name. He has paid attention to their places. He has paid attention to how bright they are, to their color, to the emissions that come from them. He has paid attention to all the details, down to the minutest of them, in order that each one of those stars, and they all together, 
may reveal the infinity of his glory, the wonder of his work, the skill of his artistry. So we see then again the heavens, but the God who is also above the heavens and the glory of that God. But in comparison to those heavens, David says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? He emphasizes the enormity of that step down from the heavens to man that he talked about also in verse 2. It is an enormous step. The heavens are so large, and in comparison to them, man is so small. Besides that, he is man. That is, he's a creature formed of the dust of the ground. He's of the earth. He's not of the heavens. He's of the earth. And in fact, he is just a small part even of that earthly creation. One tiny creature in the earthly creation. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? In other words, how insignificant I am. It's very interesting to note, too, how David here, in this context, speaks of man. In verse 2, when he was talking about the glory of the heavens, or when he was talking about the enemies, rather, of God, he spoke of babes and nursing infants. Now he's talking about the heavens, the glory of the heavens, the majesty and immensity of the heavens, and he does not compare to those heavens babes and nursing infants. He speaks of mature men. In comparison to those heavens, how insignificant man is. And yet, God has given to man a place of honor in that creation. David does not here continue then in the rest of the psalm to dwell on man's insignificance as if that's the end of the story. But he turns instead to the subject of man's glory. And he says, you made him a little lower than the angels. Now that word angels is in the Hebrew, the word Elohim, which is used many, many times in the Old Testament. And in almost every instance refers to God. So that we could read here, and probably should, you have made him a little lower than God. But we may accept the translation angels for now. It's accepted also by the apostle in Hebrews chapter 2, as we'll see shortly. You may accept the translation angels because when God created man, he gave him a position of honor and authority. He made him insignificant in relation to the heavens, but he also exalted him to a position a little lower than the angels. 
who are heavenly creatures. That is, God has placed at the very top of the earthly creation this insignificant creature, insignificant creature called man, whom he formed from the dust of the ground. He has given to him royal dignity, making him a king. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So here, as David begins to work down the hierarchy, he goes from God to the heavens, to the Son of Man, who's so insignificant in comparison to the heavens, and then he turns our attention to the glory of man in the earthly creation. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. Then, in verses 6 to 8, David refers to the works of God's hands over which God has given him dominion. All sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. He begins with those animals which are most immediately and obviously under man's dominion. The domestic animals. All sheep and oxen. But he extends his view from the domestic animals to the wild animals, the beasts of the field. And from the beasts of the field, even to the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. God has placed them all under man's dominion. We should notice, too, that David assigns to each of these classes of creatures its place in the creation the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea. Land, air, and sea come under the dominion of man. He even mentions the paths of the seas. And we may refer here, I think, to those mighty currents that flow through the oceans, carrying with them an abundance of marine life, and also to those paths for example, that the salmon follow when they return to the streams of their spawning, or those paths that the whales follow as they make their migrations from north to south and back again. All these creatures and their places God has put under the feet of man, giving man dominion over all his earthly creation. The emphasis then here in these verses is on the glory of this creature called man who is in relation to the heavens such an insignificant thing. But we would be remiss, people of God, if we did not, in our interpretation of this part of the psalm, refer to the New Testament quotations from two passages, the two that we read at the beginning of this sermon. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28, where David takes the words 
of this psalm, he has put all things under his feet and applies them to Christ. He tells us there in 1 Corinthians 15 then that God is talking about Christ. It's a psalm that is fulfilled in the exaltation of Christ to be king. But the thing we particularly want to note about that is that what Paul says about those words, he has put all things under his feet, is inclusive of the heavenly creation as well. Paul does not say he has put all earthly things under his feet. He says he has put all things under his feet and then goes on to say, but there's one exception to that, and that's the only exception. The one exception is God himself who put all things under him. In other words, our Lord Jesus Christ has been exalted not just to rule over the earth, but to rule over heaven itself and all the creatures that belong to heaven. He is the highest. Just lower, not than the angels, but just lower than God. And in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews 2 begins with a warning. The Apostle is talking in chapter 1 about the greatness of the salvation that God has given to us now in the New Testament. And he warns the saints in this epistle that they must be careful not to neglect that great salvation that God has given them because their judgment, if they do neglect it, will be greater than the judgment of the saints of the Old Testament when they neglected that salvation. In verse 5, then, he begins to tell us about how great that salvation is. And in describing the greatness of that salvation, chooses Psalm 8 as its illustration. And he quotes from and interprets Psalm 8 in order to show us, then, how great a salvation we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says first, then notice, in these verses, for he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? In other words, the Apostle Paul says, I'm talking about this great salvation now, and I'm talking about it in terms of Psalm 8, and I'm telling you that when Psalm 8 says he has put it all things under his feet, he does not mean that he has put the world to come under the feet of angels, but he means that he has put it under the feet of man. He has put also the heavenly creation under the feet of man. You have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. 
Notice then the next line, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. So the apostle says, what applies to our Lord Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15 is true also of us, the redeemed in Christ Jesus, that he has put all things under his feet. He has, God has exalted him to a position of authority and with him also us. We are kings in that new creation and all things are put under our feet. In other words, this psalm is not just about the earthly creation, but about the heavenly creation, the world to come. In that world to come, we will be the most exalted of all of God's creatures. And he's not talking either about men in general, is he? He's talking about the redeemed. The human race as redeemed and recreated in Jesus Christ. The psalm itself suggests that we have to take this view of it to get a proper understanding because it talks in verses 1 and 2, doesn't it, about the antithesis, which didn't come into being until after God began his redeeming and recreating work. He talks about the mouths of babes and infants who still or silence the enemy and the avenger. He also talks about What is man that you are mindful of or that you remember him? And the son of man that you visit him. Those words suggest, do they not, that man through his fall has fallen from his position of honor and that God has in his infinite mercy come to man, redeemed him, and restored him. He has remembered him and visited him. Now Hebrews also goes on to say, we don't see this yet. We don't yet see all things put under him. But we do see Jesus, who is the guarantee of that place of honor. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Notice the reference to the psalm again. Who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. Now crowned with glory and honor. Made lower than the angels but now exalted above them. Seated at the right hand of God. The guarantee that we too shall rule with him. All things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. That brings us to the conclusion of the psalm, the repetition of those words, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Our conclusion cannot be, people of God, what a great and glorious creature man is. But our conclusion must be, what a great and glorious God is he who has made man. 
He is the Alpha and the Omega. Of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. The psalm emphasizes throughout, from beginning to end, that all this that we have been talking about is the work of God's hands. He ordained strength from the mouth of infants, and by that strength silenced his enemies, the enemy and the avenger. He made the heavens. They are the work of his fingers. He gave glory and honor to the Son of Man. He made him ruler over all the works of his hands. He put all things in subjection under his feet. It is all of God. It is all his doing. And so the conclusion of the psalm and our conclusion must be, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Praise Him then. Praise Him for the glory of the heavens. Praise Him for the strength that is in the mouth of infants. Praise Him for His silencing of the enemies and the avengers. Praise Him for the work of His fingers. Praise Him for the glory of the Son of Man. Praise Him for all the creatures He has made. His name is excellent. Having heard the word of God, let us say amen.